This is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. If you're the Yankees, well, they're not off to a good start. They now trail the Cubs 2-0 as Rodon running out of some steam here in the fifth inning, perhaps. Two on, two out, a run in already here in the fifth inning. And the Yankees with one hit so far through four are trailing the Cubs by a score of two to nothing. It's Pat O'Keefe in for Dan Grassa with you until 10 o'clock. So we'll follow along for the Yanks. Um, we had Tommy Beer on a little while ago discussing the Knicks offseason. All indications are, and I don't think this is the news that Knicks fans wanted to hear, but you have to be realistic about this. All indications are that this is the team that the Knicks are going to take into the upcoming season. Tom Thibodeau likes Dante DiVincenzo. He looks at him as a quote-unquote Tibbs guy, and he wants to fill his roster with Tibbs guys. Jalen Brunson is a Tibbs guy. Josh Hart is a Tibbs guy. R.J. Barrett's, I mean, not R.J. Julius Randle is a Tibbs guy. I mean, how can he not be? Tom Thibodeau turned around Julius Randle's career. Randle plays 38 minutes a night, and unless he sprains his ankle, he never misses a game. And Dante DiVincenzo is said to be a, a Tibbs guy. And more importantly, a Tibbs guy who can shoot the ball. 39% from downtown last season. Now, that does come with a little bit of a caveat. You have to understand that DiVincenzo shot 39% from downtown while playing for the Golden State Warriors. The Golden State Warriors of Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green initiating the offense. A lot of those shots were wide open because if DiVincenzo's on the floor with Curry and Thompson, the defense ain't focusing on him. So you have to take that into consideration. Now, Brian Windhorst from ESPN, NBA Insider, earlier tonight, was on the Michael K Show, K Solo earlier today, uh, Windhorst, his thoughts on the Knicks offseason so far. I was a little surprised by the OB Toppin trade. Obviously, it got out there that he and Tom Thibodeau had that exchange, whatever it was, in the postseason. I don't know if it was non-recoverable because when that guy was in your rotation. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't care if you give me two second-round picks or four second-round picks. The chances of getting a rotation player with a second-round pick is not great. They traded a rotation player for picks. I do think the DiVincenzo signing is very good value, getting that type of player for that. That type of contract is good value. And I also know that they've been wanting to hold on to Evan Fournier because they're waiting to make a big trade. And I don't know if that big trade is going to happen. I don't think they do either. I'm not saying that they have it, that they know exactly what it's going to be, but I think that they want to leave their options open. A couple of things on that. Obi Toppin traded to Indiana. Knicks receiving two second-round picks. Now, Ian Begley of SNY this is from his Twitter earlier this afternoon. League sources confirm that the Knicks will get the least favorable of the Pacers and Suns 2028 second round pick and the least favorable of the Pacers and Wizards 2029 second round pick in the OB top and trade. That was first reported by the Indianapolis Star. So um, fans and people not happy with the Knicks return for a former eighth overall pick are probably going to become less happy when they learn that, that it's not even the prime second-round pick for whatever that is worth. Now, I laid the whole Toppin thing out on Sunday. Uh, wasn't shocked that they moved him 
because I thought they had to move him at some point. Um, because of the way that rookie extensions are structured, Toppin and Quickly were both drafted in the same year. Now, Toppin was the eighth overall pick. Quickly was the 25th overall pick. But three years into their NBA careers, I think it's clear who's the more valuable Nick. It's become Emmanuel Quickly. Largely because, I shouldn't say largely, one of the reasons is uh, because of the position that Toppin plays. He happens to play the same exact position as the guy who has been the Knicks' best player cumulatively over those last three years. So Toppin plays 13, 14 minutes a game. Yes, he's eligible for a big rookie extension, but the Knicks aren't going to sign him to that kind of money because they can't sign Toppin and they can't sign quickly. And next year, by the way, Quentin Grimes will be in the same boat, and you likely want to bring him back as well. You can't pay all three of them. So the writing was on the wall that the Knicks did have to part with Obi Toppin. I did like Tommy Beer's point, though, last hour. Why now? Why not hold on to him until the trade deadline? Because like Tommy said, his value can't go down anymore. What are you going to get? One highly protected second-round pick instead of two? That's not the end of the world. But it was interesting that they did pull the trigger on Obi Toppin now because, yeah, Josh Hart becomes the backup power forward. So those 13, 14 minutes a game that Julius Randle is on the bench, Hart will play the power forward in a small lineup for the Knicks. You know, they still do have Jericho Sims, who's coming back from shoulder surgery. He played some power forward last year. But what happens if Julius Randle breaks a finger and is out for three weeks? I know Randle's been highly durable, but he wasn't at the very end of last season. He missed the last five games after he sprained his ankle against the Heat in the regular season. And then he came back for the Cavs series. We weren't sure until right before tip-off if he was going to play. Played the first four games, four and a half games, was hobbled. And then in the second quarter of game five, the closeout game for the Knicks, he sprained the ankle again. And then he missed game one of the second round series against the Heat came back and played, wasn't 100% the rest of the series, and then it turned out that it was severe enough that he had off-season surgery on that injured ankle. So we also don't know that part of it. But the Knicks really, by trading Obi Toppin for two second-round draft picks, got rid of any insurance for their starting power forward, Julius Randle. And can you get away with a combination of Josh Hart and R.J. Barrett and Dante DiVincenzo in a small lineup, or Jericho Sims in a big lineup playing with one of the other centers for 12 to 14 minutes a night? I think on most nights you can, but again, that doesn't account for the scenario, what if Randall breaks a finger and has to miss three weeks? Then what? Are you going to start Josh Hart as your power forward? And uh, he's a versatile defender, but going up against teams like the Phoenix Suns, is Josh Hart going to guard Kevin Durant? That's not an ideal situation. All right, more from Brian Windhorst on the Knicks uh, and how this could be it. DiVincenzo in, topping out. You got your nine-man rotation, and he says the Knicks are still sticking to their plan. They were rewarded last year for patience. They did not go all in on Donovan Mitchell and ended up in a good place as a team. They did not go all in at the trade deadline. They made a prudent, smart, high-value addition in Josh Hart. They had very good results showing patience. 
So I think, you know, that's one of the things that they have lacked over the years is they haven't had patience. And I think they're waiting for a big fish to swim along. And I wish I could tell you that I knew it was going to happen in the next four months or 12 months or whatever. But they're sitting there holding in a, a remarkable hand and they're waiting to deploy it. And I know that that hand that, you know, future draft picks and cap flexibility isn't necessarily going to beat the bucks. But I kind of appreciate them having a plan and at least sticking to it. That's something they haven't always done. They've done that under this regime, however. Leon Rose has been patient since the day he took over as team president. And you can't fault him for it because are the Knicks better than when he took over? Absolutely. You know, think about it. When Leon Rose took over right before COVID, I think March 1st of 2020 was officially his first day on the job as the Knicks team president. They were two, three months removed from David Fisdale having been their head coach before he was fired when the team was 4-18, and coming off a 17-65 and win season. So to go from that point, the depths of that, to a playoff appearance in 2021 and a second-round playoff appearance this year, yeah, the Knicks are markedly better. Now, if you want to take the optimist's view, and I know Knicks fans always, always take the optimist's view, when discussing their team. But if you want to take the optimist's view, let's just look elsewhere throughout the Eastern Conference. And which team or teams, if any, have gotten markedly better? Now, last year, the Knicks were fifth place in the regular season. They upset the fourth-seeded Cavs in the first round of the playoffs and made it to round two. So Milwaukee finished first last year. Um, They lost in the first round to Miami. The biggest factor there was Giannis Antetokounmpo injuring his back in the first half of game one and essentially missing the first two and a half games. And I know the one game in that series Milwaukee won was one that Giannis didn't play. But by the time he came back, Jimmy Butler spent two games completely unconscious. And the combination of Giannis missing half the series and Butler having an out-of-body experience in his game four and five performances, knocked the Bucks out. The Bucks are essentially running it back this year. They still have Giannis, and that's always a good place to start. They brought back an aging Chris Middleton, and they brought back an aging Brooke Lopez, and they still have Drew Holiday. That has been the core of their team since they won the NBA championship in 2021. The problem with that plan is this. Lopez is not getting any younger. He was in the 2008 draft, and if you look at why Milwaukee, who I think at, por- at parts of each of the last two seasons was the best team in the NBA, why didn't they win the title either of the last two seasons? Well, two years ago, Chris Middleton got hurt in the playoffs, and they weren't able to get past Boston in the second round. And then this year, Giannis got hurt, and they weren't able to get past Miami in the first round. They're trying to run it back, but they're trying to run it back with a team that is older with Lopez and Middleton, and Holiday has a lot of mileage on him as well, and Giannis wasn't the healthiest guy during the regular season last year. So they're putting a lot of eggs, like if if Milwaukee is healthy and stays healthy, yes, I do think they can be an NBA championship team again. But this is now two years in a row that their season has been derailed by an injury And how do we know that that's not going to happen a third time? So that's Milwaukee. I think Boston, while still very good and talented, I think they've lost a lot of their edge. They traded away Marcus Smart, and they traded him away for a losing ball player in Kristaps Porzingis. 
Kristaps Porzingis is not a good clubhouse guy. He has never contributed to meaningful winning in the NBA. And last year, he had his best season. Why? Because he was up for a contract extension. Kristaps Porzingis is the definition of a good stats, bad team guy. Now, he's not on a bad team. He's on a team with a lot of recent history of winning in the Boston Celtics with two all-NBA players leading the way with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. But Marcus Smart is gone, and he was in many ways the heart and soul of that team. And Grant Williams, they elected not to match his um, restricted free agent offer. Grant Williams is in Dallas now, and he was a tough, bruising type of player off the bench. So basically, you took all the toughness away from the Celtics, and you replaced them with one of the softest and mentally weakest players in the NBA in Chris Stapp's Porzingis. So the Celtics did not get markedly better. Philadelphia is still in flux. They have the reigning MVP in Joel Embiid, who always seems to break down during the playoffs. So you can almost set a clock to that. And then James Harden, we don't know his situation. Cleveland improved around the margins, but the Knicks handled them last year. And then the one wild card in all of this is Miami. They finished in eighth place last year, or they finished in as the eighth seed last year after they lost, after they lost the first play-in game to the Atlanta Hawks. And then we know what they did during the playoffs, even without Tyler Hero. And Miami, you could say what you want about how it could get ugly with Damian Lillard and Portland and his desire to go to Miami. The Heat are still the odds-on favorite to acquire Damian Lillard. And the Heat always seem to find a way to get what they want. Ever since Pat Riley went there, they always seem to find a way to get where they want. So if you put Lillard on the Heat, and that's far from a done deal right now, they're really the only team that got markedly better. So if you're the Knicks and you run it back with essentially essentially the same cast of characters, replacing Toppin with DiVincenzo in your rotation, if you're the Knicks, is the hope, I guess the hope is one of two things. Number one, as Windhorse said, the next big disgruntled superstar wants out of his current situation and wants to go to New York. In that case, the Knicks would have the assets to trade for that player. They do. The Knicks have the assets to trade for Lillard. They had the assets to trade for Donovan Mitchell last year. They chose not to. They have the assets to trade for James Harden. As we mentioned, Leon Rose has been very patient. The Knicks have not felt yet that it was the right time to cash in on one of these players. But what if that player becomes a Joel Embiid? So that's part one, the first scenario on how you can improve. And the second is get back to where you were last year. Earn the fourth seed, earn the fifth seed, find yourself in the second round of the playoffs, and all of those teams that you would be facing in the second round all have question marks, whether it's the Bucks and their recent injury history, whether it's the Celtics, do they take a step back? Whether it's the 76ers, do they take a step back? And whether it's Miami, do they even get Damian Lillard? And if you find yourself in a favorable matchup, look, let's be honest, the Knicks should have been in the conference finals this year. I know everybody was doing cartwheels over their second-round playoff appearance, their first time winning a playoff series in 10 years, but they should have beaten the Heat. They handled the Heat during the regular season. Miami was playing without its second-most important offensive player. But they were a better defensive team. They were the mentally tougher team, and they were the better coach team in that second-round series. But man for man, in that series, the Knicks were the better team. So again, if you're taking the optimist's approach, 
you look at this and say, well, the Knicks did improve, not markedly, but DiVincenzo replacing Toppin is an improvement for what Tom Thibodeau wants to do. So they're a little bit closer, and they were pretty close last year. The optimist's view? Knicks fans love the optimist's view. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. Yanks trailing two to nothing. There's a runner on third base with one out. Yankees would be best advised, and Ian Hamilton is pitching, to hold it right here the way their offense is going tonight against Jamison Tyone because they have generated nothing so far, and they already trailed two to nothing. 1-800-919-3776 is the number. Um, Pat O'Keefe in for Dan Grassa tonight here till 10 o'clock. Let's go to uh, John in Poughkeepsie. Hey, John, how you doing? Hey, Pat, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How's it going? Uh, good. Uh, my question is, why don't they give Esteban Florio a chance? Uh, Frenchy Cordero is one for 29 with 14 strikeouts the last time he was up. So I don't understand why. he. he I know he's not on the 40-man roster, but why don't they give him a chance? His numbers this year uh, in Scranton are excellent. He's got a 992 OPS. This is Florial. He's got 21 home runs already and 50 runs batted in. He's fast as anything with 18 stolen bases and he's got a 295 batting average and a 391 on base percentage. I mean, across the board, and John, thanks for the call. Across the board, those numbers are fantastic. Um, and he's still, he's 25 years old. He'll be 26 years old in November. Now, Aaron Boone, um, to answer John's question, was asked the same question before the game tonight. Is Florial's biggest issue not being on the 40-man roster? That's part of it, I guess, yeah. Flo's done a really nice job down there of putting together a really strong season. Certainly keeps pushing himself into the conversation anytime we do have a need. So I would say that's part of it. You know, role plays a factor in it too. So big numbers in AAA. He can field all three outfield positions. He's an excellent center fielder. Um, it sounds like it's a 40-man roster issue. And the Yankees continue to play kind of roulette with this 40-man roster. Even today, they had to activate Rodon who was on the 60-man IL, and they put Nestor Cortez on the 60-man IL, which pushes back his not projected return date, but even potential return date to the beginning of August. That's the earliest we could see Nestor Cortez. Remember, they did that last year with Luis Severino when he was on the shelf and he thought he was only going to be out for a few weeks and then the Yankees needed to free up a roster spot on the 40-man roster and they put Severino on the 60-day IL and he wasn't happy about that because it meant that he wasn't able to return until September. Well, the Yankees just got out of that inning. They had first and third and one out and a tailor-made double play ball uh, off the bat of Trey Mancini. So it's still 2 nothing. Middle of the sixth inning, good first start for Carlos Rodon. A very good sign for uh, him and for the Yankees in his 2023 season debut coming off the injured list. Speaking of the Yankees, I touched on this earlier, but we are officially, officially in code red territory for Luis Severino. Now, what's Severino going to be? I mean, a bad start here, okay, it happens. Two bad starts in a row, it happens. And this this started at the very beginning of June. Came off the injured list in late May. His first two starts were excellent. Had a 1.59 ERA through his first two starts. And then it all started to come undone in Los Angeles against the Dodgers when he gave up hard hit after hard hit after hard hit. And then he was hit hard again. 
And like I said, one bad start, okay, even two bad starts. But now we're talking about in the span of seven starts for Severino, six of them have been bad. And I would say at least four or five of them have been absolutely gruesome, like the one yesterday, where he's at the point now where he doesn't, he doesn't give his team a chance to win, and everything, everything he throws is hittable. He's not putting batters away. He's not getting ahead of hitters. He's putting the ball in the zone. They're making excellent contact. They're hitting the ball hard, and they're circling the bases on him, and this is becoming an every five-day occurrence when Luis Severino is on the mound. He spoke after last night's game uh, about his slider and how that's feeling. I mean, I don't feel good about any of my pitches right now, really, you know. And actually, in the bullpen, I got a good feeling about my, my, my secondary pitches. But any of my pitches are working right now. And now it's entering the point where it's a combination of poor performance and you've got to wonder what his confidence is like right now. After these six terrible starts in his last seven appearances. And this can tend to have the snowball effect also. So the All-Star break seemingly coming at an ideal time for Luis Severino, a chance to reset, get away from pitching every five days. I would expect the Yankees to slot him in towards the back of their rotation coming out of the All-Star break. Again, the Yankees rotation this weekend, Rodon is already done tonight. They're trailing 2-0 in the bottom of the sixth inning to the Cubs. Tomorrow, it's Garrett Cole against Drew Smiley. And then on Sunday afternoon, Domingo Herman against Kyle Hendricks. Yankees rotation is in a pretty good place right now. And it's an even better place with what Rodon did tonight at Yankee Stadium. Let me take a look at his final numbers uh, from this game. Yeah, he left with the team trailing two to nothing. But he goes five and a third innings, four hits, two earned runs, two runs, two earned, a couple of strikeouts. 69 pitches and 45 of them for strikes. I think that's something that's going to make Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman extremely happy for his season debut on the mound. But just when he comes back, and this was kind of the story of the Yankees season too. Every time they plug a hole of a leak, another leak pops up somewhere else on this Yankee ship. And they have been waiting for Rodon to come back and solidify this rotation and maybe even give them a little bit of a a little bit of a buffer because Schmidt has started to pitch well and Herman has pitched well Cole's been excellent and now you have Rodon added to all of that so now you can wait on Nestor if Severino was doing his job but Severino is not even close to doing his job so where do they stand with that yeah when Cortez comes back and Severino continues along this path you expect him to be replaced in the rotation by Nestor Severino. Like, where does that leave him? Do you remember the offseason right before 2019 when the Yankees made those two really shrewd, financially responsible, long-term commitments to Luis Severino and to Aaron Hicks, both for seven years and around $70 million? Two players who it was felt that if they got to actual free agency could command a lot more on the open market. Neither of those contracts, obviously the Hicks contract, um, they still owe him $35 million, and the Yankees certainly did not get a return on that investment, and they haven't gotten much of a return on the investment yet for Luis Severino either. And here they are in the bottom of the sixth inning, and we're talking a lot about the pitching, 
and Severino's troubles and Rodon's return, and it's a team that just can't hit. They're 1-for-18 tonight. They're 1-for-18 against Jamison Tyone, who even after throwing five and two-thirds shutout innings tonight, one hit ball through five and two-thirds shutout innings in his return to the Bronx, even after that, Tyone's ERA is all the way down to a 6.36 as Torres flies out weakly to right field to end the sixth inning and the Yankees trailing two to nothing. One for 19 are the Yankees against Jamison Tyone in a game where they get a huge lift by having their number two starter return and make his season debut and he pitches very well. And he gets to experience what pretty much the rest of the Yankee staff has experienced for the last two months. This anemic offense that can't seem to generate any runs. You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. This Britney Spears, Victor Wimbenyama situation that happened in Las Vegas a couple of days ago. Uh, if you haven't heard about it or seen the video, TMZ released the video today uh, where Spears was um, claiming that Wimbenyama's uh, security detail backhanded her in the face and knocked her to the ground, knocked her glasses off of her face. And we've since seen the video. Uh, there were some accounts that she ran up behind Wimbenyama and grabbed him on the shoulder video shows that she didn't do that um it's just a weird situation all around number one it's it's her her reaction to Wimbenyama is odd if you haven't seen it she's basically running through the lobby of this upscale restaurant casino in Las Vegas trying to get his attention apparently she's a big fan she got close enough to tap him on the shoulder and wanted to take a picture with him or introduce herself to him or something like that. Let me just say this. And look, I'm I'm no Britney Spears fan, but she's, you know, been in our lives, people who are my age, she's about my age, uh, for like 20 years. Britney Spears, on her worst day of her career, is more famous than Victor Wembenyama. And I know this is like a sports show, and... You know, I I try to keep it in the sports lane, but I'm also aware of things in the world. I mean, on what planet? I understand this guy's he's supposed to be the next big thing, the best prospect since LeBron James, 19 year old phenom, seven foot five, eight foot wingspan. He hasn't even played his first summer league game yet. In what world is Victor Wembanyama somebody who? Somebody like Britney Spears, with her level of fame, should be running up to to try to take a picture with in a casino. I mean, she's Britney Spears. Can she not figure out a way to get word to Wembenyama that she's a big fan, that she'd like to take a picture, that she'd like to meet him? I mean, she was running up to him in this lobby like she was any other fan, like total fangirl on this 19-year-old kid. It was odd. Now... The other part of this, it's now since been reported that she actually hit herself in the face. Now, I looked at this video a lot, and again, TMZ has released it. Perhaps, if you watch the video, perhaps her hand, okay, is the hand that makes contact with her face. 
it's not 100% clear whether her hand contacts her face or the security guard's hand contacts her face. But the one thing that I feel watching this over and over again is pretty indisputable is that even if it was her hand that smacked her in the face, it was caused by the security guard's hand hitting her hand into her face. Was this whole thing fabricated? Look, Britney Spears has had her own issues, okay? I'm not... I got to be careful not to defend her too much because I don't know what her motivation is here. But I do know that she ran up tapped Wembenyama on the shoulder, and the security guard didn't even turn around. He just instinctively flipped his hand back in the direction of her face, and ultimately somebody's hand made contact with her face. That, to me, that's reckless. If you're a security guard, you can't let that happen. What if that was like a a 65-year-old woman, a 70-year-old woman, or a 70-year-old man? that wanted to get this guy's attention. You don't know that whether it's a a 40-year-old pop star, a 70-year-old woman, a 70-year-old man, you don't know who that is. You can't just recklessly and lazily, I don't know if that's a word, just flick your hand back and knock away a prospective fan. I mean, you've got to have your head on a swivel. You're you're there for a reason. And and the San Antonio Spurs, by the way, never had, and I know we're, we're in a different world now, But they never had security detail for Tim Duncan. And they never had security detail for David Robinson. Wembenyama gets it. Okay, fine. But you've got to do better than that. It can't result in somebody getting smacked in the face, even if it's her own hand smacking her in the face because your hand pushed it into her face. Whether or not she's an international pop star, that just can't happen. Now, because the reports, the latest reports are saying that the contact was actually her hand against her face. No cha- no charges are being filed against anybody here. But I have a problem with how the security guard in this situation handled the situation. Not even looking to see the direction where he was flicking his hand. Now again, the one thing that gives me pause here is that it's Britney Spears. And I have no idea, no idea what her motivation is. All right, so that's number one. Welcome welcome to the NBA. Welcome to this country, Victor Wembenyama. By the way, he'll be on the court in about 15 minutes in his summer league debut in Vegas. It's the Spurs against the Hornets. It's on ESPN. Um, it's Wembenyama against Brandon Miller, who was the number two pick in the draft this year out of Alabama. Number two, the NBA this week has announced some details of this midseason tournament. This has been talked about, and this has been a pet project of Adam Silver's for years. It's modeled after uh, the European soccer leagues where you compete throughout the year for the overall championship, but they have different in-season tournaments. They have different in-season cups. They even have that in MLS. They have the, I think it's called the U.S. Cup, where teams from the MLS will compete with teams from the lower levels of professional soccer uh, ultimately deciding on a champion of that particular cup and that's what Adam Silver has wanted just to drum up the goal here is to drum up more interest in the regular season before Christmas you know a lot of people a lot of casual NBA fans really feel that the league begins with 
the Christmas Day slate. You know, before then, it's all about football. It's all about college football. Uh, the NBA season is always opening up right around the time of the World Series. And from the middle of October when the season uh, begins, all the way through Christmas, not a lot of attention. Well, this in-season tournament, here's some details about it. All right? It's happening, by the way. That's the most important thing to note. The in-season tournament is official. It's absolutely happening this year. And tomorrow night at 7.30 on ESPN, there will be a 30-minute special detailing how it's going to work. Here's what we know. All right? Um, All teams will participate in the group stage. There will be six groups, three groups per conference. So, essentially, they're like – there's six divisions now in the NBA. There's going to be six groups. It's not going to be the same teams in each group that are in the same division. That will be mixed up according to this story on ESPN.com. The groups will be chosen by a random draw based on teams' winning percentage the previous season. But it sounds like your group is going to be within your own conference. So each team will be in a group of five teams. Each team will play four games in its group. Okay. So when the group stage is complete, like we do in the World Cup and international soccer tournaments, the six group winners will advance to the knockout stage. And then the two wild cards, which will be the two teams that finished with the best winning percentage, but not in first place in their groups. They will advance. Those eight teams will then play in a single elimination tournament through the final. And... The semifinals and the finals will be on December 7th, semifinals, and December 9th, championship of this tournament, and those will be played in Las Vegas. So what do we think about this? Is this something that's going to excite fans? What What's the point of this? I, I need to know more details about how exactly it's going to work. Uh, Mark Tatum, who's the deputy commissioner for the NBA, also a Brooklyn native, was on ESPN Radio and spoke about the value of this midseason tournament. I would tell you that the uh, that the goal is to create a new championship tradition, uh, much like we see in international soccer, international basketball, and this new tradition and this new opportunity to win a championship in the middle of the season um, has become, we've seen internationally, meaningful to teams, the players, and the fans. And now with 25% of our players born outside the United States, one of the things that we have realized is that those international players are accustomed to playing in these cup-like tournaments and these in-season tournaments. Um, And the fans have really taken to it. And so we're, in essence, taking regular season games and giving them even more significance by having them count towards this in-season tournament. So will it work? And who is this really geared for? You're listening to the best of ESPN New York tonight. Talking about this mid-season tournament that the NBA has introduced for this coming season. Now, here, here's a couple important distinctions to remember. So, again, there'll be six groups, five NBA teams in a group, okay? Each team uh, will play four different games. They'll play uh, a game against each of the other four teams in their group. Those games will count as regular season games. So they will still be included in the team's 82-game regular season record. Okay, so if the Knicks have in their group, let's just say, the Bulls, the Wizards, the Pistons, and the Pacers, okay? They'll play two of those games at home. Let's say they play the Bulls and the Wizards at home. Well, then those two games that they play in this midseason tournament 
would count as one of the games they would play against those teams at Madison Square Garden anyway. And when all is said and done, when this entire tournament is complete, every team will still play 82 games except the two teams that make the finals. They'll have played an 83rd game because they'll meet each other in the championship. Now, the stats from that game will not count for the regular season. Um, but the stats for all of the other midseason tournament games will count for your total regular season stats. So there's a lot to take in. Now, who is this for? You know, in, in my mind, it has to be for, you know, the fans of teams like the Orlando Magic, the Charlotte Hornets, the Detroit Pistons, you know, teams that, especially the Magic and the Hornets, the Minnesota Timberwolves, teams that have never won anything and really have never come close to winning anything. I know the Magic have been to a couple of NBA Finals. Uh, I know the Timberwolves a very, very long time ago went to the Western Conference Finals. But these are franchises that, at the beginning of each and every season, including the upcoming season, don't really feel like they have a realistic chance of winning an NBA championship. What the NBA is hoping that a team like the Magic or a team like the Timberwolves can go on a run here in this midseason tournament and get to the Final Four and give their fans extra reason to tune into what would ordinarily be a regular season game in the beginning of December, except now there's actual stakes and there's an actual trophy and an actual championship at stake for them to want their team to win. But here's the problem. That's been done in Europe for literally decades more than a century you know these european cups go back so long and all these fans in each individual town have just grown up and it's been ingrained in them that this is an important thing and also those tournaments tend to uh, include your team playing against another team that you don't ordinarily play against this is going to be the Knicks playing against the Pistons. The Knicks playing against the Cavaliers. We, we've seen that three or four times. Every single regular season, we get that anyway. So does it add any extra excitement? I, I think it's going to... Look, I think by the time you get to the quarterfinals or the semifinals, if there is a quote-unquote Cinderella team that's not among the NBA's elite that's there, yeah, maybe that drums up some interest. But other than that, I don't see Golden State Warriors fans getting excited about this or Denver Nuggets fans, but we shall see. This is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs>